Ignore God and play with evil. Even many churches today portray God as a big teddy bear who tolerates anything and wouldn't hurt a flea. <laughs> that is not the God of the Bible. Hebrews 10, 26 says, If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This verse is specifically dealing with the sin of apostasy, which means to fall away from the faith. Today, it's commonly called to deconstruct your faith. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. According to the Jewish calendar, we are Anno Mundi 5784. Now, Anno Mundi means in the year of creation. It is based on a literal reading of the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. It was later shown that the rabbis were off a couple hundred years. They uh, basically missed the uh, Persian uh, period. But this calendar was widely accepted by the Christian world up until the early 1800s. After thoroughly researching the Bible, physicist Isaac Newton, one of the greatest scientists that ever lived, calculated that God created the world in 3998 BC. Astronomer Johannes Kepler, who was also an outstanding Bible-believing Christian, he had the creation at 3977 BC, which would mean, according to Kepler's calculations, this year we are Anno Monday 6,000, okay? In the year of creation 6,000. All of the major theologians and church leaders of that era, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Archbishop Usher, dozens of others agreed with this uh, time scale. They all believed the world began about 4,000 B.C., they all took the biblical record in Exodus 20, verse 9, at face value. This is what Exodus 20, verse 9 says. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Okay, um, so we work six days and rest on the seventh. In creation, God worked six days and he rested on the seventh. And that is where academic consensus remained until the early 1800s. Dr. Terry Mortensen, in his book, The Great Turning Point, explains what happened next. Around the year 1800, the academic discipline of geology was born. Now, as you know, geology is the study of rocks and rock layers. Up until this time, scientists were persuaded that Noah's flood 
had formed the rock layers that we see today in places like the North Shore and in the Grand Canyon. Now here's why they thought that. Genesis 7 says this, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month. Now I want you to notice the precision there, okay? The, God wanted us to know exactly how this happened. On that day, all of the springs of the great deep burst forth. There was volcanic action all over the planet. And the floodgates of the heavens were opened. You know, that right now there's only enough uh, rain up there, you know, in the whole atmosphere. Uh, there isn't much rain. It would be about two inches of rain if it all came down at once. But uh, prior to the flood, there was rain, uh, water in the atmosphere. So the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, verse 19 tells us the waters rose greatly on the earth. And all of the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered to a depth of more than 20 feet. And again, notice the precision. <clears throat> Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. The birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all of the creatures that swarm over the earth and all of mankind. Even up to the mid-1800s, seven of the leading geologists in England agreed that Noah's flood explains not only the formation of rock layers, but also the fossil record. Because large animals like the dinosaurs would have been rapidly overcome by rising water and they had nowhere to go. Now let me ask you a question. Should this historical account here in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, should that be taught to our children today? Okay? Uh, you know, I was sitting, when I was going through this, I, I, I was reminded of sitting at Bethel Seminary. And I took a class on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And I remember sitting there, and I remember the professor saying, no, 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 no. This is a different genre of literature, okay? And all of the, the, uh, all of the ancient societies, they have their creation stories. And so this is another story. Now, that's, that's, uh, it should not be taken literally, you know? And I was just baffled by that because I sat back and I thought, you know, it says in the 600th year of Noah's life on the 17th day of the second month, sounds pretty, you know, uh, like this is a historical account of stuff that really happened. Uh, it is not a different, a different genre of literature. It is history. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is where we learn that God is the creator of the universe. He is the maker of all things. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
In these chapters, we learn the foundational truth about sin. How it happened that Adam and Eve fell into sin. We learn about Satan, the the, uh, slithering serpent that came into the garden and deceived Adam and Eve. We learn about salvation by a blood sacrifice, right? Adam and Eve had to kill an animal and wear the, the, uh, uh, the coverings to cover over uh, their sin. We learn about a Messiah that will come and he will, according to uh, Genesis 3, he will crush the head of the serpent. It is in these chapters that we learn about the genders, that there is two of them which Paul reminded us at the Grand Prix. (laughs) There's the male gender and the female gender. We learn about sex in the first 11 chapters. We learn about marriage. We learn about families. We learn about nations. We learn about races. How did the races form? Genesis 11. We learn about ethnic groups. We learn that God designed our universe, or our earth, uh, based on nations, nationalism, and not globalism, according to Genesis 11. So today, more than ever before, we need to train up a child in the way he should go, they should go, so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. In Proverbs 3, King Solomon teaches his son these five pillars in developing a Christian worldview. And each of them comes with a promise. Very interesting to note the promise. The first pillar is to keep, keep God's commands. The promise is longevity you are likely to live a long life. Now remember, this is a proverb. This is something that is generally true. Keep God's commandments, you'll live a long life. Verse one, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commandments in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years, and they will bring you prosperity. Last October, Heartland sponsored a trip down to Kentucky to see the Creation Museum, to see the Ark Encounter. And there were 40 of us that joined, uh, joined with on that trip. Five years earlier, we brought 56 down there. So we've had about 100 here from Heartland that have visited the Ark Encounter. Now, over the years, what has been a delight to see with the Ark Encounter, they have gone from simply being a creation evolution ministry to teaching a holistic Christian worldview. So this is what they teach at the Ark. They call it the seven C's of history. First, creation. Everything we see in six days. Then corruption. Adam and Eve fell into sin. Then catastrophe. Noah's flood due to sin infecting the entire planet. And then we have confusion at the Tower of Babel, 
when God brought confusion through the different languages that led to mankind spreading out over the entire earth. And then we have Christ. God took on flesh and dwelled among us. And then we have the cross where Jesus made eternal life possible for each of us by paying for our sin with his blood. And then we have the consummation. Jesus will one day return to our planet and he will set up his kingdom here on this earth. In verse 1, King Solomon says, My son, do not forget my teaching. The Hebrew word is the Torah. It refers specifically to the first five books of the Bible, but many times it is used to describe the entire Old Testament. Solomon goes on to say, but keep my commands in your heart. The Hebrew word for commands is mitzvah, as in bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. Now you've heard about that, right? This is the Jewish ceremony for 13-year-olds. It's a coming-of-age ceremony. And it indicates that the boy or girl is now personally responsible for keeping the commandments of God. Up to that time, they are under the banner of their parents. But now they're personally responsible. So bar is the Hebrew word for son. Bat is the Hebrew word for daughter. Bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. And they are not to pick and choose which commands they wish to obey. Because Deuteronomy 4.2 says, don't add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Deuteronomy 12.32 says the same thing. It says, see that you do all that I command you. Don't add to it. And don't subtract from it. Proverbs 30, verse 6 says basically the same thing. uh, Jeremiah 26, 2 says basically the same thing. Don't add to it. Don't subtract to it. And then in the last chapter of the Bible, we have a solemn warning. They even go a step further. Here's what it says, Revelation 22. I warn... Everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away words from the book of prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a solemn warning. Heartland family, we don't just throw out the parts we don't like. (laughs) And uh, as a pastor, I tremble when I read a verse like that. Okay, Because pastors and teachers will be held to a higher standard. We will answer to God for what we've taught. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture, all of it, God breathed 
and it's useful. King Solomon taught that if you keep God's commands, it's going to lengthen your life. Okay? Sadly, here's what's interesting. Solomon didn't heed his own teaching. He took multiple wives. Wasn't supposed to do that. And you know what? He died at 58. Okay? Never lived to old age. Now let's move to the second pillar in developing a Christian worldview, and that's to love based on God's truth and the reward the reward if you do this is a good name. Verse 3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. The word for love is the Hebrew word chesed. And it refers to being full of mercy and kindness. But verse 3 is talking about a specific kind of mercy and kindness. One that is based on faithfulness. The Hebrew word literally means it's based on truth. We are to have mercy based on God's truth. That is found in his word. Did you know that real love, it can never be divorced from real truth? The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, this is the love chapter. It says in verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. That's so important to understand in an age where people equate acceptance of them as a person with acceptance of their behavior. Jesus didn't come to comfort you in your sin. He came to free you from your sin. And we are to do likewise, preach likewise. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But praise God, he also said this, if the Son sets you free, you're going to be free indeed. Katie McCoy hit the nail on the head in her book, To Be a Woman. Like all of us, Katie's trying to understand why there is this explosion of young women wanting to transition to becoming men. Because historically, this is unprecedented. Even up to 10 years ago, up to a decade ago, gender dysphoria almost always afflicted boys and men who wanted to transition to be women. So how are we to process this? How are we to relate to our friends and loved ones who are struggling with gender ideology? Katie challenges us to love them with a love that is based on God's truth. Amen. All of us are made in the image of God. And we are of such great value that Jesus died for us. Not so that we can stay in our sin, so that we can be freed from our sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. At the cross, God's love and his mercy 
collide with God's justice and his truth. You can't have one without the other. But let's move to the third pillar in developing a Christian worldview, and that is trust. Trust God, don't trust yourself. Here's the reward. You trust God, you're going to have confidence. You're going to have confidence that God will guide and direct you. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not unto your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. The Hebrew word can also be translated as smooth. He will make your paths smooth. You ever prayed for smooth sailing? Oh, Lord, how we like to have a day here of just smooth sailing. When you put your trust in God, not yourself, he will cause you to be sure-footed. He will cause you to be confident. Who doesn't want that? Recently, I was reading about the Christian armor that God commands us to put on. I noticed something I'd never noticed before. In Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the pieces of armor, like a Roman soldier getting ready for battle. We're to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. But then verse 18 says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now here's what's interesting. Here's what really registered with me for the, the first time. There is no piece of Roman armor equivalent to prayer. But you know what? That's not true for the modern soldier. Because the modern soldier has a radio. <laughs> now, what makes the radio so important is not the radio itself, but what the radio is connected to, which is overwhelming power. In the Battle of the Bulge during World War II, the Germans surprised the Americans, a massive invasion. They broke through our lines on 40 miles, except for the northern sector. There, the American lines held largely because of the radio. The U.S. Army had 300 artillery pieces zeroed in on the German lines. Whenever they attempted a breakthrough, American officers would radio the artillery and overwhelming firepower came raining down on the Germans. Do you realize that the most important weapon you have as a Christian is prayer? Now, to the outsider, this seems ludicrous. They look at us and they say, you know, empty, meaningless words, blah, 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 floating into outer space. But the Bible tells us that prayer connects us to the overwhelming power of God himself. That's why Jesus said, prayer moves mountains. I can't tell you how many Thursday nights we've been gathered here in the fellowship hall, maybe a dozen of us, sometimes more, sometimes less. But sometime during that hour of storming the gates of heaven, you can feel 
a divine connection. And it's like electricity. And it happens every, just about every, every time that I, I, I come. It, it, it really makes me want to come back. God is moving mighty forces into position in response to our prayers. Can I ask you today, are you praying with other believers? Because Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Heartland family, that's the heavy artillery, okay? That's like a nuclear missile being launched against the forces of darkness. Husbands, if you are not praying with your wife, there is no better time than to start today. Sue and I pray every day, nearly every morning, nearly every night, asking for that covering of grace over our family and over our church family here at Heartland. Don't put off the joy of praying with other believers. Now, do you need to come to Thursday prayer? No. Okay, we'd love to have you join us. But you do need to pray with others in some context. Every week you need to get together and pray with others. Look again at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Prayer is the key to obeying that voice. If you're not praying, guess what? You're not trusting God. You're trusting yourself, right? You just say, oh, God, I don't need to pray about this one. I got this figured out. I can handle this one, Lord. We do that all the time, don't we? Hey? And then only later we say, oh, why didn't I pray about this? So let's move on to the fourth pillar in developing a Christian worldview. <clears throat> and that pillar is to fear. Fear God, and then it says, shun evil. The promise is health. Okay, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. You know, today it's not politically correct to fear God and shun evil. On the contrary, most Americans ignore God and play with evil. Okay? Would you agree with that? Yeah. Most Americans ignore God. You know, it's about on any given Sunday morning, it's about 16% of Amer uh, Minnesotans go to church. 16%. One out, one out of seven, roughly. Okay? Ignore God and play with evil. Even many churches today portray God as a big teddy bear who tolerates anything and, and wouldn't hurt a flea. <laughs> that is not the God of the Bible. Hebrews 10, 26 says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. 
This verse is specifically dealing with the sin of apostasy, which means to fall away from the faith. Today, it's commonly called to deconstruct your faith. And, and that's what Pastor Josh Harris did, the uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye guy. And uh, every family is faced with this. Uh, we've, got, uh, you know, we've got nieces and nephews we're praying for because, because they, they've walked away from what they were taught as children. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And it often has serious health consequences. That's what this says. Apostasy and poor health go hand in hand. Far worse are the raging fires of hell waiting for those who reject Christ. That's why I plead with you today, do not dabble with sin. Rather, draw a line in the sand. Romans 12.9 says, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Psalm 97.10 says, let those who love the Lord Hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful one and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Praise God. Now this brings us to the fifth pillar in developing a Christian worldview. And this is to honor. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And there's a there's a promise. The promise is prosperity. Your barns will overflow. Verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. In 1804, a young man named William Colgate arrived in New York City, didn't have a dime to his name. He had Jesus in his heart, however, thanks to a godly mother. And as he set up business as a soap maker, he dedicated everything he had to God, and he determined, he said, God, as you prosper me, I will return an honest tithe, 10% of every dollar I earn. It was slow going in the early years. Skimming off 10% for God was not easy. But little by little, Colgate prospered. And as he did, he increased his giving to 20%, and then 30%, and then 40%. He increased it all the way to 50% on every dollar he dedicated to God. Today, we know this as the Colgate-Palmolive Company, but it traces its beginnings, uh, traces its origin to those humble beginnings. And there are many other companies with similar stories, okay? Now, far more common are, are uh, the simple stories by people like my parents and grandparents, my grandpa grew up on a 40-acre farm just south of Modley, and the farming is not good in that area. There's a lot of rocks, soil's poor. When grandpa committed his life to Jesus, 
he soon started tithing on his meager income. And somehow, by God's grace, they survived the Great Depression. He said there were many times all we had was enough to eat and nothing more. My dad told me of the time when Grandpa gave him a young calf to raise as his own. When it came time to sell, Dad is down there on the ground. He's counting out the exact amount of the tithe. And he gave it to the Lord the next Sunday at church. But it wasn't easy. In 1950, Grandpa and Dad put up some buildings about a mile and a half from our farm. They opened up a gas station six miles south of Motley. You can still see the buildings there if you drive on Highway 10. Trying to make ends meet, they stayed open seven days a week until a preacher came to town and uh, preached about that. And they were convicted about working on Sunday. And so they closed on Sunday. And Grandpa said, that was our most profitable day. But we closed. Hard decision. But both my grandpa and dad would say that it was right about that time, 1955, 1956, when the business just took off. God's math doesn't always make sense to us. Okay? But he's made us a promise. If you work six days, take one off, you'll do better than if you work seven days. That's what Isaiah 58 teaches. And if you live on 90% and give 10% to God, you'll do better than if you live on 100%. That's what Malachi 3 teaches. If you haven't tried it, why not start today? I close with this. Most people are at least somewhat aware of the fact that God offers eternal life for those who place their faith in him. But far less are aware of the fact that God offers a blessed life, a happy life, to those who are living out a Christian worldview. But you know what? It'll require you to step out on faith. And you will receive pushback from the world around you. In Luke 14, 28, Jesus put it like this. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Then he goes on to say, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. One of my heroes of the faith is John Whitcomb. He's the son of a decorated colonel who served in World War II. John Whitcomb was childhood friends with Norman Schwarzkopf, who led the Allied troops in Desert Storm 1991. Now, you can read John Whitcomb's story in A Good and Faithful Servant. Young John also fought the Germans in the Battle of the Bulge. Around this time, 1944 or so, he, gave his, he came to faith in Christ, determined in his heart that he would serve the Lord. So after the war, he enrolled in seminary, 
And he determined in his heart to accurately preach and teach the word of God. And he loved his school. He loved his professors. But he was puzzled by the way they taught the book of Genesis. Now at the time, most of the instructors taught that there was a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 in which a prehistoric world occurred when the dinosaurs flourished and soulless human beings, uh, hominids, walked around on the earth. During this time, Satan rebelled and brought this prehistoric world to a ruin, but now... Beginning in Genesis 1-2, God's starting over again. That's what they were teaching in the seminary where John Whitcomb attended. Now, he was just a student. <laughs> you know? But this whole thing, it just seemed far-fetched to him. And he challenged his professors over and over again. He said, he said you know, guys, shouldn't we interpret science, which changes all the time, according to the Bible, which never changes? Okay? That is what most of the academics did up until the early 1800s. Why then, he asked, why are we interpreting the Bible, which never changes, according to science, which constantly changes? <laughs> Those were the questions he asked. And then John said, are we sure that the world is billions of years old? After all, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 which says sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men. John Whitcomb says, does this not teach that death, decay, and disease entered the world after Adam and Eve sinned? Which means, by implication, that the dinosaurs lived during that 1,656-year period of time from the creation of Adam until Noah's flood, and then died off in uh, the post-flood world with a new climate. So, John Whitcomb decided to write his doctoral dissertation on Noah's flood. In 1961, he teamed up with Henry Morris, professor of hydraulics from the University of Minnesota, Ph.D. Hydraulics has to do with the movement of water, so he was an expert in this. And together, Morris and Whitcomb wrote the Genesis Flood that gave birth to the Institute of Creation Research in Southern California, and after a few years, a young Australian named Ken Ham moved from Australia and came to work at the Institute of Creation Research. A few years later, Ken Ham decides to go out on his own. He forms a group called Answers in Genesis, which is the ministry that built the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. In a world where so many trends are heading in the wrong direction, here's one heading in the right direction, okay? 
Ken Ham has gathered a large team of scientists from many academic disciplines who are committed to interpret science in light of the Bible, which never changes. Okay, Al Mohler has switched his position uh, to uh, six-day creationism. R.C. Sproul has switched his position before he passed away. My mentor, David Larson, who came here to Annandale in the year 2000. And he said, Pastor Danny, you know, you, you just seem a little mixed up about the end times. And he really is the one who led me back to the pre-tribulational rapture as the most biblical approach. And I challenged him that day. He was in my office. I challenged him about the beginnings. I said, where are you at on that, David? He said, well, I'm a, I'm a gap theory guy but I'm moving toward the other direction. The last time I heard David Larson speak, he spoke on, Dave, on Genesis 1 and 2. I'd never heard him. I heard him preach many times. He preached on Genesis 1 and 2. He preached on a literal six-day creation and a world that was only 4,000 years old. God has blessed the Ark Encounter. In 2021, the Ark and Creation Museum welcomed their 10 millionth guest. Hardland family, today, if we want to keep the king's kids on the road to heaven, we must train them in a Christian worldview, and it starts with God himself. For what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are you committed to doing that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God. In a world where science changes, philosophies change, worldviews change, they come and go. We thank you that the scripture remains constant, never changes. We thank you, God, that you do not change as well. We thank you, Jesus, that you said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my world, my word will never pass away. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We love you, Lord. We desire to honor you. Lord, with fear and trembling, we desire to dig into your word and study it and believe it and share it with others, not adding to it and not subtracting from it. Lord, that is our heart's desire. Keep us close to you. As our heads are bowed right now, I just want to also give you an opportunity today to commit your life to this God who rules and reigns on high. He is the God of history. If you have not committed your life to him and asked Jesus, the Son of God, who came to this earth, and lived a sinless life, and then died on a cross as 
a blood sacrifice to cover over your sins. You have never accepted what Jesus did for you on the cross and asked him to forgive your sins, to cleanse you, and then put that behind you and say, I am born again. The old world is gone. The new world has come. You've never made that decision to ask Jesus to come into your life. You can do that today. You can pray, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me, cleanse me, and help me now to live for you. Father, I pray for any who are reaching out to you right now that you, the God of the universe, would reach down to them, Lord, and tell them, whisper to them, you're one of mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.